My friends, would you please stand with me as we read the Lord's word again, returning to Colossians chapter 4, reading verses 10 through 17 and looking specifically at verses 10 and 11. Again, let us listen now to the Lord's word. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who was called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Again, O Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that these verses would be a great encouragement to your people today, reminding us again, Lord, of those things which are of primary importance in this life. We become very busy and very preoccupied with so many things, and yet, Father, one thing is best. And we pray, Father, that that would be the thing that we focus on. To this end, I pray, Lord, that you would bless your congregation and bless the servant and bless your word going forward. Strengthen your people for the days at hand. We do ask humbly these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we return today to the closing portion of this letter, I want to remind you of what I reminded you of several weeks back, that this is the word of God. The fact that these verses 7 through 18 are the conclusion of this little epistle we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that they are somehow less inspired than the rest of the scriptures. These verses, these words, are all breathed by God. They are no less important than and no less authoritative than the rest of the scriptures, red letters included. This being said, however, uh, this does not mean that all things in the Bible are equally clear. Peter says that, that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand I know I've said this before, but I'm awfully glad when Peter wrote that. Because <laughs> I have often thought the same thing. What? What's he saying here? Um, not all things are equally clear in the Bible. Some of the riches sit on top of the soil, and they're easily gathered up. And other riches uh, are those which we have to dig for in the scriptures. But all of it, all scripture, we are told, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, that is, fitted or complete. He's equipped for every good work. So we approach again this closing section of this letter, and we are met with an assortment of names, of greetings, of various facts concerning these men. And it may not be readily apparent what we are to learn from the Spirit's words to us. We are not given, in these two verses that we're looking at today, 10 and 11, we're not given commands 
We're not given exhortations. We are not given an outline of doctrine or teaching points, but we are shown something so sweet and really quite lovely, really very sweet and quite lovely, something that should be observed by the church and imitated by all of us. There are some things that are, as we used to say in seminary, uh, and and they would say this in regard to uh, preaching, they would say, uh, preaching is something that's better caught than taught, right? So you listen to good preachers and you you learn from them. I'm, I'm taking that statement and I'm applying it here that there are some things in the church that are better caught than taught. You, you, you see people in the church and you look at them and you say, I, I want to be like that person. I want to be like that person, that individual, and how they carry themselves or what they do. Some things are better caught this way. Here, here there are, um, as Paul would hold them forth, worthwhile examples that should be followed. They are examples of blessing to the church, of those who bless others. This is the godly example that is set before us, that as, as a congregation now, nearly 2,000 years later, we should be following this example And so what we see first is we see a demonstration of godly affection for the body of Christ. We should have a godly affection for the body of Christ. And this this may seem a strange thing, but I want you to listen here again to what Paul says. We're looking at three individuals, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Listen to what he says. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas's cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. Um, here are these three men that Paul mentions. And it is a picture of the church. First of all, I want you to notice this. People with different backgrounds, different strengths, different weaknesses, with an affection for one another in the church. That's what the church is, a body of sinners who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ from all walks and all nations of life, all walks of life and all nations of the world. We are brought together under, under one head. In Christ, we are united into one body. We see this diversity and this unity simultaneously. And Paul first introduces us to Aristarchus. Um, who is this man? We first meet him or read about Aristarchus in Acts chapter 19, verse 29. Aristarchus was a Jewish convert from Thessalonica. He was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And we read about him um, during the third missionary journey. During his Paul's lengthy stay in Ephesus, you recall there was uh, uh, Artemis, Um, And and the people would be chanting because Paul was cutting in on the revenues of the idol makers. So people were turning from idols and they were turning to Christ and the idol makers were becoming angry because he's cutting in on their revenue. We got to stop this guy. We got to stop him because we make our livings off these idols. And furthermore, the temple of Artemis the Great is going to fall into uh, disrepair if we don't stop this. So a big riot breaks out during this time, and we are told that here in, in, uh, in Acts 19 that Aristarchus and a man named Gaius uh, from Macedonia are uh, seized by the mob as it breaks out. The people are chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're told that the people who are rioting, didn't, many of them didn't even know why they were rioting. They were just caught up in the emotion of the moment, and here are these two guys 
Paul's traveling companions who are swept away in this mob. This is Aristarchus. We find him referred to again in Acts chapter 20. Again, he's mentioned as being one of several who continued to accompany the Apostle Paul. It was on this trip uh, with delegates from various churches of predominantly Gentile origin, and they were carrying aid to the needy in Jerusalem. We meet Aristarchus once more in the very beginning of the account of Paul's dangerous voyage uh, upon the ship in Acts chapter 27. He starts out with Paul, and he probably accompanied the apostle all the way to Rome. And now we read of them here. So bear in mind, Aristarchus is, is because of Paul's preaching, he's at one point, he's caught up in this mob. He's busy serving alongside of the apostle, and he endures shipwrecks along with the apostle. This is Aristarchus. And now we come uh, to Rome, and he is with the apostle, and the apostle calls him my fellow prisoner. He's a wonderful character, and I'm trying to get one of my children to name their children Aristarchus, because this is a good character. I say, this is a good character. This is the kind of guy you'd want to imitate. He's not a flash in the pan. He's the salt of the earth. He's the real deal, this Aristarchus. And Paul says, he says, he's my fellow prisoner. Paul was a prisoner, you recall this. He was imprisoned for preaching Jesus Christ. With Aristarchus, there's good reason to believe that he is not, strictly speaking, a prisoner in the same sense that the Apostle Paul is. And this gets a little uh, convoluted unless you're, you're laying out your scriptures from Philemon and Colossians next to each other and looking at these things. Um, scholars believe that there's a different sense in which Aristarchus is a prisoner. Um, he is not a prisoner in the same sense as Paul. In fact, when scholars compare the closing uh, comments from Colossians and Philemon, uh, which were written during the same time or at the same time, we find a difference uh, regarding what Paul says about Aristarchus and Epaphras. So here in verse 10, Aristarchus is called a fellow prisoner. In Philemon, verse 23, he is referred to as my fellow worker only. Now, he is called a fellow worker here in Colossians and a fellow prisoner, but in Philemon, he is only called my fellow worker. And, and if they're written at the same time, why wouldn't Paul say, well, he's a fellow prisoner as well? However, in Philemon, Epaphras is referred to as a fellow prisoner, but nowhere in the book of Colossians is Epaphras referred to as a fellow worker. So they're going, why isn't Paul saying the exact same thing in the letters about these two guys, that they're both fellow workers and fellow prisoners? What's up with this? Now, let me say that there's no contradiction in Scripture because people can be, uh, a woman can be a, a wife and a sister simultaneously. It depends on, on what we're talking about or, or who we're introducing them to. So there is no, no um, contradiction here. The oddity has led scholars to believe, and I think this is worthwhile considering, that while Paul's imprisonment was mandatory, these men, Aristarchus and Epaphras, may well have volunteered to share Paul's imprisonment, assisting him in every possible way, one commentator suggesting that perhaps they passed themselves off as servants of the Apostle Paul. Under house arrest, he is dependent upon people to come and go and to minister to him, and Aristarchus and Epaphras are fellow prisoners in the sense that, as Paul has been mandatorily you know, brought into prison, we're going to submit ourselves 
to being prisoners with him. Which means we could go and pursue the easy life, and they choose not to. Rather, they submit themselves and say, Paul, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you're to go through this, we're to go through this, we will go through this with you. Which is a wonderful thing. If this is true, it means that Aristarchus uh, and Epaphras have not been made to be in prison, but have willingly taken upon themselves to enter into less than desirable situations in order to minister to the Apostle Paul, which again says something about the character of the men who surrounded the Apostle Paul. Aristarchus, is a, he's a good, solid Christian man. He is not concerned for himself. He is not bemoaning his lot. He is not grumbling, but happily, it would appear, has taken upon himself the burden of the Apostle Paul. He is this godly character, and his concern is not for himself, for his own well-being, but for the Apostle and for the church. He is not inward-focused, but he is outward-focused. Does this sound like anyone? Does this sound to us like Jesus Christ? That's who it should sound like. And this is what we see in Aristarchus. We are told, again, of the Lord Jesus, uh, that he had this mindset and attitude who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the call of Christ upon the Christian life. Paul would say it in the book of Philippians, which we've been going through in Sunday school. It is to be the mindset uh, that you and I are supposed to demonstrate as the Lord's people. Again, Philippians 2, 3 through 8, we read this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The attitude of Jesus Christ we see reflected in the attitude of Aristarchus in his voluntarily saying, I will be a fellow prisoner with you, Paul, and please send them my greetings. Send them my greetings. We read that this is what Jesus Christ has done for us how he gave himself, humbled himself even to death, and even a brutal death, and all this for his people. This is what Christ has done for us. And this is what we are called to, the laying aside of our glory, our comforts, and our ease for the sake of others, and this is what we see in the man Aristarchus. Secondly, we look at Mark. Paul would go on, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you Welcome him. Mark and Paul have a very interesting past together. Uh, we, were, we spoke about Mark some Sundays back on Sunday evening in Acts 13. It was during Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, some 12 years earlier, Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Holy Spirit and sent out by him to spread the gospel. They took with them, we're told in Acts 13.5, a young man named John as their helper. So as Barnabas and Paul have been sent out, we have John, who's also known as Mark, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, he's there to help serve. They're, he's doing legwork. He's making sure 
uh, Barnabas and Paul have what they need, and, and he's arranging things and doing things so that the gospel can go forward. But we're told in Acts 13, 13 this, after they had spent some time on the island of Cyprus doing their mission work, Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now at this point in, in Acts 13, Luke makes no comment uh, other than that John left them. We don't know anything else about why he left. There is no comment uh, as to what kind of fallout there may have been, nothing. It's not until we come to Acts 15, verses 36 through 39. Stay with me here. I promise it's going to go going somewhere with this. Um, that we read this. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. This is Barnabas' cousin, Mark. And he had disgraced himself before the apostle Paul. And we don't know why. We don't know if it was pettiness. We don't know if he was homesick. We don't know, but we suspect that it might have had something to do with his being very Jewish. And it was troublesome to him. Some scholars say that, that, that Mark was bothered that Paul is being so eager to talk to Gentiles. And some said, this is a problem for Mark. And he was like, I'm just, I'm gone. I'm out of here. And Paul says, well, we can't have that on a missions trip. We don't know why he left. Paul says he deserted them and he was not willing for him to come on the second missionary journey. Fast forward 12 years now, Mark is now with the apostle in Rome. That in itself is a story for us. Mark has gone through a hard lesson. Praise the Lord for the son of encouragement, Barnabas, who has taken Mark under his wing. What a difference 12 years makes. The man who had deserted, who had cut and run, whom the apostle would not serve alongside of, Mark had changed. He had grown and he had become more sanctified. Apparently, through the ministry of Barnabas, who likewise had ministered to Saul when nobody else wanted him, right? Remember that? Barnabas did this with Saul, who we know as Paul. Along with the ministry of Peter and others, the man who was known as a deserter became eminently helpful and a blessing to the church. Peter would refer to him, uh, to Mark in 1 Peter 5.13, as my son, a term of affection. Mark would be the one who the Lord would use to write the second gospel. And Paul would now say of him, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. We know that Paul would not say this about a person who was not trustworthy. And furthermore, five years later, the Apostle Paul would say this about Mark. He would say, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. This is a wonderful thing we hear about Mark, a beautiful thing. A man who had failed, a man who was restored, and a man who ended up being such a blessing to the church. Uh, just a couple of brief points of application. The so what? The therefore. Don't let Satan hold hold your past over you and keep you from serving Christ. 
Turn from the things you've done wrong and cultivate faithfulness. This is everyone. This is everyone's life. Who, has, who doesn't have a past? Anyone not have a past? Of course you do. But this is what the Lord does. He delivers sinners from their past. He makes us new creatures. And we cultivate faithfulness. And we determine not to go back down those paths that we had gone down before. And if you're dealing with somebody with a past, uh, don't lord their past over them and keep them from service. Of course, look for fruit of change, but understand that we are all in process. And here, it's just marvelous that Paul, who wanted nothing to do with Mark at one point, and said, "Uh uh-uh, we're not taking him on this mission trip, Barnabas. There's no way it's going to happen. You can't have this guy here. Just 12 years later, he's saying, welcome him. He's a decent man. Bring him along. Um, So we find this. Mark had grown. He had matured in the things of the Lord, and he went on to serve the Lord faithfully. And third, we are told about this man, Justice, and also Jesus who was called Justice. This is the only place in the scriptures that we are told of Justice. Jesus was the name of this Jew who had become a Christian, Jesus being the Greek and Latin form of Joshua or Jeshua, One commentator believes that it was probable that he changed his name out of respect or honor for our Savior, changing his name to justice, meaning the just or the righteous. Justice is there, too, as the apostle is winding up his letter, and all three men send their greetings to the church in Colossae. So I want you to just notice, first of all, that there's these three men, and they're, they're, they're hanging around Paul as he's writing the letter, and they're saying, oh, oh, hey, Make sure you tell them I said hi. Make sure you tell them I I wish them well. I I wish I could be there with them or or something along with these greetings. They're sending their greetings. Peter would say in 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. But these men are not there with the people, but they're hundreds of miles away. Here, this greeting is the idea of to send a, 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 to bid welcome or to wish well to. And here these men, men whom the Colossian church likely did not know, hundreds of miles away, who bother to send well wishes to the Christians in Colossae. Why? What do they have in common? You understand, friends? And this is why we pray for the church in China, why we pray for the church in Azerbaijan. Uh, We do this because we are part of the body of Christ. We weep together, we laugh together, we labor together, we fight for one another. But their greetings become or take on an even greater significance when we consider that these men are fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. That's a big deal. When he says that they're from the circumcision, understand, I want you to think for a second, how did the Jew feel about the Gentile? We have the book of Acts that tells us repeatedly how the Jews felt about the Gentiles, right? And that these three men, Paul says, are from the circumcision and they're sending their greetings to a bunch of Gentiles. That's significant. That's very significant. These men are fellow workers, again, uh, for the kingdom of God and they are from the circumcision. They are seeking to be a blessing to those who are very different from themselves. Something that we're not so good at doing. We look for the right kind of people to advance the kingdom of God with. And we don't look at people and just say, 
hey, that's a person. They need Jesus Christ. We think more like, hey, that's the kind of person I would like to have at my church. I think I'll share the gospel with them. That's not the way we ought to be doing this thing. Find the lawyers. Find the guys with deep pockets. Let's get them into the church. That's not what we should be doing. And yet, we see that these men, and I think this is a colossal point right here, these men, being from the circumcision, are sending their greetings to people who are not of the circumcision, which I think is a beautiful thing. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, says Paul. What the apostle says about Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice is that they are fellow workers or companions in the work of advancing the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom of God? It has reference to the divine realm as a present reality. It's not simply that God is reigning and would one day be experienced at the second coming of Christ, but that it should be recognized even now. Paul would write in Romans 14, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Along with Paul preaching the gospel, these men also work to advance the kingdom of Christ as king over all things, here in this life as well as the life to come. These men were concerned about making disciples of Jesus Christ where the reign of God was felt in their hearts, was lived in their lives, and was hoped for for all eternity. These men are kingdom builders. And that's what Paul says. But sadly, he says, these are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Where are the rest of the Jews who have come to know Christ? Why is it that there's only three who are saying, Paul, we're in this with you. We want to see the gospel go forward. Why is it? And notice, notice it, it, it's, there's this disappointment, a hint of disappointment. Where are the others who have experienced the love and grace of the Lord from among the Jews? Jews may say the Gentiles need the gospel. But there was a struggle. It's one thing to say you know others need the Lord, but quite another to do something about it to promote it. To bridge our differences in background up upbringing and traditions and to advance the kingdom of God is a very difficult thing for many people. And yet, this difficulty didn't keep them, these three men, from doing that very thing. Paul himself was not liked by many of the Jews. Consider how he was persecuted by them in Acts 13 and 14. The Judaizers regarded him with suspicion. The Judaizers confessed Christ but overemphasized the importance of the law for the Christian and the Colossian church battled heretics of a Jewish and Gnostic flavor. Yet here were three Jewish converts who not only were fellow workers in the effort to make disciples of Jesus Christ, but who likewise were sending their greetings to a bunch of Gentiles as though they themselves knew they were no better than the Gentile sinners. This is a picture of love. This is a picture of affection. This is a picture of, I don't care what your past is. I only know this, that the sinner only comes to Jesus Christ through faith and by that, by the grace of God. And they didn't hold out the fact that they were circumcised and that these Gentiles were uncircumcised and saying, you're not good enough for my God. They didn't take that attitude. They send them their greetings. We have considered 
as we've been going through the book of Acts, what a difficulty it was for the Jews to accept the fact that Gentiles could be received into the church. Again, the Jews had this attitude of they were uncircumcised, they were ceremonially unclean, they eat the wrong kinds of things, they, were deplor- they had these deplorable pasts, they aren't worthy of grace. And they had a real prejudice against them, yet these men understood that men are not brought into the kingdom of God because of what they have done or not done, but because of the loving kindness of our God. And my friends, what sin keeps you from looking upon Jesus Christ? What sin has beat you up so bad that you say, I've got to perform better before Jesus will accept me? Friends, that's not the gospel. You know what the gospel is? It's recognizing what a wretch you are. Do you, you understand that? A proper understanding of the gospel requires also a proper view of ourselves. Jesus doesn't save pretty good people. You hear me? He doesn't save pretty good people. He saves wretches. That's who he saves. And you know why? Because the wretch comes to the end of himself. And he says, I have nothing. And Jesus Christ has it all. And that's what I think is the beauty in this passage. Is that these men took no confidence in their Jewishness. They did not lord their Jewishness and their clean pasts and their clean living as though they were better than these wretched sinners. They said, hey, look, at Paul's writing those wretched sinners over in Colossae. Why don't we reach out to them and say, we wish you well. (laughs) Because we're just as messed up as they are. And we have, praise the Lord, this wonderful Savior. Listen to what Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. We read this. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This, my friends, is why their greetings are especially sweet, because they recognize that they were sinners saved by grace and must extend this grace to others who were different than themselves. So that when 
the Gentiles would pick up this letter and it would be read. You could hear the people in the congregation say, could you read that last sentence again? Who said greetings? Aristarchus. Mark? Seriously? Mark said that? Justice? Why, these are, these are Jews who have come to faith in Jesus. What would that have done to those saints who typically were treated as though they were outcasts, second-rate citizens in the body of Christ? By the way, we still have that problem in the church today. That if you're not Jewish, you're not really a citizen of the kingdom. of Well, you kind of are, but you're in the low-rent district. That's not, that's not the Bible's teaching. That's not the Bible's teaching. Ephesians 2 dismantles that, that mindset. There's one body. Our God is not a polygamist. He's a monogamist. He has one bride made up of Jews and Gentiles. And you can imagine these saints as they hear this, that these Jews are sending their greetings, their best wishes to them, that they're concerned for them. This must have made their hearts sore to know that we're not alone. These people are pulling from us from hundreds of miles away. They love us. And it would have encouraged their hearts. They welcomed him into the body. And finally then we see, as Paul writes, that these, these brothers proved to be an encouragement to him, to the apostle. And Paul says of these three, and they have proved to be an encouragement or a comfort to me. It's a brief point. With all of the opposition that the apostle had gone through, the fact that he's sitting in prison waiting for uh, judgment, with all of the trials he went underwent, and with the dangers of false teachers at hand, these three had shown themselves, had demonstrated that they were solidly resting and acting upon the truth of the gospel. And this was a comfort for the Apostle Paul. These men, my friends, demonstrate how Christians ought to behave towards one another. The concerns, the attitudes that we ought to have towards one another in the church, even when we are separated by hundreds and thousands of miles apart from each other. They were a band of brothers engaged in being a blessing to the church and advancing the kingdom of God. And this is what the Lord has given to us as an example for how we ought to carry ourselves uh, in our day and in the church. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. Again, we thank you for these three men and for their faithful example of voluntarily taking upon themselves hardships in order to support, to bless, and to strengthen your church. We ask, Father, that your blessing would be upon us in this way and that you would help us, Lord, not to be Americans, but help us, Lord, to walk and live as citizens of your kingdom. We pray that your work would be done in us through your word and by the power of your spirit to transform us to make our hearts to be that of that of our Savior who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. We ask, Father, that we would be those who rest in your grace and who likewise would extend this grace to others that they too might know life in you. 
Bless your word going forward and cause the kingdom of Satan, we pray, injury. We humbly ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.